The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition. Got some good questions lined up today for you. Uh, heard through the grapevine that we'll have some type of uh, Roth question. I don't know if we've had a Roth question in a while. Um, I think we've still got a pile of Social Security and Irma questions, so we'll probably start off with those, although Jim is the ultimate controller of what we cover. He might surprise me. But uh, he's joining me remotely. Um, I don't know why I mentioned that. It doesn't really make a heck of a lot of difference. (laughs) We're still able to record this way. Uh, But uh, thanks a lot for listening. And thanks, I guess I'll give a, you know, kind of a a preemptive thank you to those who have supplied us with these questions. If you want to send in your own question, it's uh, pretty straightforward. Just email Jim directly. Just send an email directly to jim at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S.com. Make sure in the subject line you include uh, wording like it's a question for the podcast, suggestion for the podcast, something about the podcast, and uh, he'll put it into his uh, list to consider. We can't cover every question that we get. We get quite a few, but uh, you never know. You never know, A, when we're going to get to it, maybe eventually, but sometimes there's actually a chance we'll get to your question pretty much immediately because we always try to pluck out at least one question that's come in just in the last week. So uh, we call that the new question of the week, as I have no idea if we have one of those this week. Jim will be with us, and actually now is Jim's time, so he can unmute his microphone and let us know if we indeed will have a new question of the week, if we can look forward to that or not. Perfect. Your timing was excellent. Why don't you keep talking? I'm going to mute you for another 10 seconds, and I'll explain why. Okie dokie. Well, that sounds uh, ominous. He's got 10 seconds to prepare something. He's going to spring on me. I have a funny feeling. Um, when he comes back, he'll share with us if he's got that actual new question of the week or not. That's easily 10 seconds, Jim, so you got to come back in now. Is that 10 seconds? A little more, but that's all good. A little more. Okay. All right. So you might be wondering why I muted myself. I had to go get my coffee, and I didn't want you to yell at me because the microwave was about to beep. I didn't know your intro was going to take so damn long. I'm like, oh, come on. Hurry up. 
And then one time, folks, apparently my microwave was beeping in the background of the recording and I was told not to have the microwave on. I broke the rule today because I wanted my pumpkin caramel coffee reheated. And uh, I almost made it. Isn't it in a different room? You must that's have the, why I had to go get it. Yeah, but you must have the loudest microwave. I do have a loud-ass microwave, oh, okay. yeah. That, that You can hear that thing across the house, yeah. <laughs> I could set it as an alarm, probably. Okay, anyways, so we the, do you, have it. You may or may not have heard my question, then the people are waiting for the answer. Do we have a new question of the week this week? Absolutely. Okay, perfect. We're not we going to do qu- it now, but... Yep. Yeah. New question of the week that came in today. Whoa. The, yeah, the guy's probably wondering, man... Send in a new question. He got three emails from me, and now I'm going to feature it on the podcast. Um, all because I don't know why. This just got under my skin. And as I started going deeper and deeper, and first I questioned myself and the accuracy of the information. And when I found that to be right, he then questioned God. Not, not God of all humanity, but God of IRAs, otherwise known as Ed Slot. So I then had to get a hold of the Ed Slot group to make sure everything that I said was right. And anyways, he then gave me some websites that, well, I'll get into it. So mm, interesting okay. new question of the week. Mm, can't wait. Has, has, he even wrote to me and he said, I'm sure you had no intention today of being distracted by all this. Well, Jim is easily distracted. So I am. It's like shout squirrel. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. it, true. True. Chris is not making that up. It just... You think rabbit holes are bad, you can easily distract me. Yeah. And, and this email did. I have no idea why, but it did. So it's going to be the new question of the week. Okay. All right. Anyways, let's get to a social security question. Mm-hmm. I will uh, warn everybody, you included, I am saying goodbye to whatever type of internet I have now, some sort of microwave thing, folks, that is on my roof that shoots to a tower. And I don't know, it's, I live very rural, actually not very rural at all, but rural enough where there's no hardwire cable in my mm-hmm. area. So I've gone to Elon Musk with, uh, what's it called, Chris? What am I getting? Starlink. Starlink. Mm-hmm. Starlink. So the Starlink people are here doing whatever Starlink people do, um, besides charging me a hell of a lot of money to uh, hook up Starlink, but they're also putting things in the walls that are going to shoot the internet. Uh, into this room where I'm recording in, so we'll have better signal. And same mm. thing with my bedroom. Wow. And uh, all the wires, you know, in the kitchen when you walk, you can tell I'm a bachelor. My office is on the kitchen table, and I have a wire literally across the floor that I plug my phone into. <laughs> and a boatload of wires from this Starlink thing. They're hiding all of it in my, uh, uh, what do you call it, little pantry closet thing there where mm. canned goods are. I've mm-hmm. sacrificed the bottom two shelves mm. uh, of canned goods Fancy. to have all my wires neatly stored. Very nice. Point is, you might hear in the background people chiming in and talking. I've mm. told them that I'm not talking to myself in this room. I'm recording. Yeah. And you're and not to talking to, to them. I'm not talking to them. So don't say, what, what? Uh, just hush and do your thing and let me do mine. Okay. But I do apologize ahead of time if somebody if There's any strange something. noises. Okay. I think we'll get over right. it. Okay. Perfect. All righty. Oh, wait a minute. I was ready to read the Roth question that I hope to get to today. Let me get to the social. No, I have not done what that guy said. I was going to say, have you created. embraced any of the new no, techniques? No, I, I have. I love not. that guy's idea, though. Mm. I do love his idea. 
Okay, do you want Irma first or Social Security course? Uh, qu- 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 first. Um, I'm uh, easy. Well, we always do Social Security first. Let's, let's hold up that tradition. Okay. okay. This one is a convoluted question. I'm going to hope by reading about a half of it, you're going to be able to understand what he's asking because mm-hmm. I think the example he wanted me to read is just way too confusing. Okay. But the question itself is not nearly as confusing as I think he thinks it is. Okay. It begins. Hi, Jim and Chris. Love your podcast. Been listening now for over a year and also listen to some of your older podcasts. I love the banter. Good, because we've been bantering a lot right now. Uh, and rabbit holes. You're going to see one hell of a rabbit hole if I can get to the new question of the week. I'll tell you that much. Okay. I come from a state that has had a hot streak this summer where the largest city had 30 straight days of height. I think we had this hint from someone mm, in this state before. Or at least something similar, yeah. So he, probably Let me Arizona, just put it this right? way. Let me, let me sum up. He lives in a wicked hot state. Yeah. Take think, a guess. Yeah, last time it was Arizona, so I'm guessing that. Arizona, yep, Arizona. Okay. He said, I have a social security question. It pertains to spousal benefits. Specifically, it's unclear to me what amount is used when determining if one spouse is eligible for a top-off amount. Again, not the correct verbiage, Chris. You can explain what he means by top-off amount. When determining if one spouse is eligible for a top-off amount in the following situation. This is for a very specific scenario. I understand in general terms how spousal benefits work, but feel free to explain to your listeners if needed. Here's my scenario. Say there are two spouses, both are the same age. Mm -hmm. Spouse A is 62 and files for their benefit. Spouse B waits until 70 to file for their much larger benefit. So far, so good, Chris. A very typical mm-hmm. scenario we see a lot. Mm-hmm. The guy or gal who has the higher benefit waits to 70, especially in the case of a spouse, folks, because the age 70 benefit, that larger spouse's benefit, becomes the benefit that lasts forever after the death of the first spouse. You want to try to get that as big as possible. Okay. So what he describes so far, so good. He says, Now say both people are 70. Spouse A has been receiving COLA credits for eight years. So the amount that they are receiving is now higher than their full retirement age benefit that they would have received at 67. If the amount used to calculate whether spouse A is eligible for a top-off is the amount used to calculate whether spouse A is eligible for a top-off based on their full retirement age 67 PIA amount, which is primary insurance amount, folks, their age 67 benefit he's asking, or is it based on their current amount being received, which is now larger than their full retirement age primary insurance amount? I'm trying to understand if current value of benefits matter, if that's higher than the spouse's full retirement age benefit when it comes to spousal benefits. And if I got into the example, it would get even more confusing. But do you understand what he's asking? I understand it. Mm -hmm. Oh, you should because you're smarter than I am. 
Uh, I get it. And this is a very confusing part of Social Security. Uh, Like many parts are, there's a few that are straightforward. This is one of the confusing bits, and there's plenty of those. Um, But in this case, the simple answer, I'll give the simple answer, and then I'll expand on it so everybody knows the moving parts involved here. His question was, is for calculations of a spousal benefit, is it what the current uh, the the higher wage earner, what they're receiving in a benefit, or is it their PIA that's used to determine the spousal? It is always the PIA. What you might be receiving as a benefit as a result, in this case, of delayed retirement credits. Remember, this person waited to 70 to claim. Increased the benefit, which if your full retirement age is 67, increased it by 24% by claiming at 70 instead of 67, that extra 24% increases your benefit, but it does not increase your PIA and therefore does not affect the spousal benefit. Um, What will happen with the spousal benefit though, because he gave an example, which is fairly common. Someone files for their own benefit early and thus experiences a reduction to their own benefit And then later files for a spousal benefit, in this case, eight years later. And the reason why they had to wait eight years is to claim a spousal benefit your other spouse has to have claimed. In his story, they waited until 70, and they're both the same age, uh, according to his example. And uh, that's where they're at. So um, the troubling part or the confusing part for people is that your spousal benefit, when you are also entitled to your own benefit, your spousal benefit is actually made up of two pieces. First, they figure out, are you entitled to a spousal benefit at all? The spousal benefit is 50% of the, the spouse upon which you are claiming 50% of their PIA. So if your own benefit is larger than half of your spouse's PIA, you don't, you are not owed a spousal benefit. So that's the first question. Are you even entitled to a spousal benefit? If your benefit is less than half of your spouse's PIA, then you are potentially entitled to a spousal benefit, but they pay it to you. Your ultimate benefit is actually paid to you in two pieces. They pay you your own benefit first, and then they pay what he's calling a spousal top-off What I usually refer to as a spousal offset, but I've recently realized that that's, and and I try to be precise with my wording and use the actual words that are used in in the laws and and the rules. And I have to admit here, I've been using spousal offset when, when technically in the rules, they talk about it as a spousal excess benefit. So a spousal excess or an excess spousal. So In past shows, every time I talk about a spousal offset, if you're looking for that, what you're really looking for is what they call a spousal excess or excess spousal benefit. So I'll try my hardest to to give up the, the phrase spousal offset and start using spousal excess because that is more precise. Um. So anyway, they will pay you your own benefit first and then pay you an excess spousal benefit, which will increase your benefit up to a maximum of 50% of your spouse's PIA. So let me use um, some numbers, I think, that will clarify things for people that are, um, I think, pretty straightforward. So let's pretend, remember, they're both the same age. So let's pretend each of their PIAs, primary insurance amounts, which is the amount that they're owed at their full retirement age, 
are $1,000 for the lower wage earner and $3,000 for the other. I'm doing this because I'm intentionally creating a scenario where half of the larger uh, PIA is bigger than the smaller PIA. So there is, in fact, a spousal benefit available. So potentially, the uh, let's, let's call them A and B. So spouse A is the lower wage earner with the $1,000 PIA, and, and spouse B is the $3,000 PIA. So uh, spouse A is, is eligible for a $1,500 benefit as long as a couple things occur. They're eligible for $1,500 as long as they themselves has, have reached their full retirement age when they claim it. And spouse B has to have claimed their own benefit to unlock the door to the spousal benefit in the first place. So that's the baseline, we'll call that. Now, remember in his story, spouse A claimed at 62 instead of 67. Let's pretend that's their full retirement age of 67. If that's the case, when spouse A claimed at 67, they only received $700 of their $1,000 PIA. There's a 30% reduction of your own benefit if you claim it five years early. Later on, when spouse B files, thus unlocking the door to the spousal benefit, spouse A will be paid an excess spousal benefit or spousal excess. However, that spousal excess was already predetermined to be $500. And how do I know it was that? That's because that potential $1,500 spousal that I mentioned before would have been paid to spouse A in the form of $1,000 of their own benefit plus $500 excess spousal. They have now reduced their own benefit by $300 by claiming at 62. They don't then pay you $800 spousal excess to get you up to $1,500. They will only pay you the $500 spousal excess that they were calculating off of your base PIAs. So your benefit at that point, if we're doing math, would only jump up to $1,200 instead of $1,500 in his particular scenario. So that's how it would work in his case. Um, a couple other variations here. If, if you were to claim not only your own benefit, but also the spousal benefit before your full retirement age, then that spousal excess is also reduced. So I'm not going to get into all the convoluted combinations that could happen here. But uh, just always remember that the spousal benefit is made up of first your own, you're deemed to be filing your own benefit first, and then you're paid a spousal excess if in fact you are eligible for one because your benefit is less than half of your spouse's PIA. Now he mentioned COLAs, the fact that the benefits had grown because of COLAs. I've left that out intentionally because it's irrelevant for this whole story. It changes the numbers a little bit, but not the basic concept. And the reason why it doesn't really change anything fundamentally is because both spousal benefits and your own retirement benefit are affected by the same cost of living adjustments. So everything moves up with COLAs, spouses A and spouses, spouse B's PIAs adjust each year with a COLA adjustment as those COLAs uh, happen. So everything just gets scaled up 
with the cost of living adjustments as time goes by. The thing that doesn't alter any of these calculations are the delayed retirement credits that spouse B could potentially be earning. Spouse A can't earn any because they, they claimed at 62. Well, I take it back. They could suspend at, at full retirement age, but that's, a, that's for another question or another show. I'll, I'll just leave that out for now. But in his scenario, spouse B uh, is, is earning delayed retirement credits. That does not increase any, doesn't change the math on the spousal whatsoever. So hopefully that kind of cleared it up. And, and I know we've talked about this before. Uh, this is a, a confusing piece for people. So uh, that's why we do these. We don't just dismiss these questions when we've covered them before. We, we answer them again because first we have new listeners possibly. And, and second, even those who have heard it, um, some of these complicated pieces you have to hear three, four, five times before it really sinks in about how it works. Uh, and since most of y'all don't do this every day for a living like we do, um, even if you've heard it three times before, if it's been a couple of years, you've probably forgotten how it works. And today would be a reminder of that. So, um, Jim, I think I've, I think I've tackled this with an example that was fairly easy to follow. Um, but I guess you can tell I, me if you think it was effective. I, I mean, it's an easy concept, but it's hard to follow. So okay. I think you, you did a good job. So. Well, Hopefully people it'll start to sink in. I'm yeah. sure we'll get in another month or two or three or four, mm-hmm. uh, another similar question. And like you said, we'll answer it again. So longtime listeners might say, oh, they answered a question similar to that. Oh, they answered a question similar to that. We kind of try to do because not everybody listens to every show and things need to, to be heard repeatedly. I mean, I've been chastised on this show by some people for repeating myself uh, when I answer questions. And I, I th- have I gotten any better? I, I, I tried to, but I think I'm a little bit better than I used to be. You're saying I, I still repeat myself, that I'm redundant? Yeah. I say the same thing over and over again? Yes. Hmm. I find that hard to believe. But <laughs> I if think you it's are, less. I think it's less, though. I will admit, I, I do think it's less. But it's still there. Okay. Which is well, good to a certain extent. It's, a, it's about the balance, right? Saying it once and just moving on, that's probably not enough. Saying it five times is probably too much, so somewhere in the middle. Three, which is the number I've always tried to do. Three times, because I heard or read something somewhere once that a person needs to hear something or comprehend something three times before it starts to just sink in. But in in the world of podcasts, it's not necessary so much because people can rewind and play it again. Rewind, but that's who wants to do that? What if they're driving? They have to have one hand at 10, one hand at two. So if they're driving, they can't do that. So I'm helping the people who are driving. Ah, okay. 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 So here we have a, an Irma question. I'm trying to see if he gave a hint. Well, he gave something that could be construed as a hint. Hmm. If it is, it's a pretty lame hint. Hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll throw that out there. It might stump some newer listeners who do not know where yours truly is from. Hmm. Because his question begins... Hi, Jim and Chris. This is George from Jim's home state. Well, your current home state is Colorado, but I'm, I'm assuming he means no, your like home I, from birth where you grew up state, which would be. That's, yeah, that to me is my home state. Colorado is my adopted state. Yeah, that'd be 
Massachusetts. A very Mass- long name for a very small state. Yes. Massachusetts. A lot of letters in there. You used to screw me up all the time in, in school when I was young trying to spell it. Okay. I'm a longtime listener and I love the show. Jim, I am also an AFib patient and had multiple ablations and numerous cardioversions. Mm. Feel free to consult with me on your journey with AFib. Well, I appreciate that, listener. For those who don't know, uh, I do have AFib. Uh, I was diagnosed with it about four years ago. No, three yeah, years three, ago now. Probably about three years ago. Yeah. About three years ago. Mm-hmm. But I believe I had it for many, many more years than that. What I now know is AFib, because I know what it feels like, was my doctor originally told me I had anxiety, which I found hard to believe because I have no wife, I have no kids, I have no life, <laughs> I got a business, but uh, I just couldn't see why uh, I would have anxiety. But uh, anyways, it, it was diagnosed. I suffered a massive stroke, as people know, It'll be three years next month. And I've had two ablations and I got the AFib under control and everything seems to be working. But anybody out there, I've said this before and I'll say it again, little PSA here. If you are ever just sitting around or especially laying down, because I felt it much more if I was laying in bed. But um, if not, I felt it if I was seated in the couch with my chest up against the back of the couch. But if you're ever anywhere where you just feel kind of a flutter, you just feel something different in your heart, if it feels, my best analogy that I ever came up with when I was trying to understand what I was experiencing is I kept telling my doctor, it feels like I felt when I was in grammar school waiting for my credit card. And your your chest starts, you start pumping and you just feel your heart. I hope you mean your report card. Yeah, what did I say? Well, you said credit card. I'm like, what kind of grammar oh. school are they handing out credit cards? I'd be nervous too. <laughs> I didn't think, yeah, look at my credit card statement. Yeah, I'd be nervous too. Uh, no, report card. Okay. And I used to tell him that. And I think that's why he thought it was anxiety because that for a little oh, you know, eight-year-old kid waiting for a report card to bring home was anxiety. That was pure anxiety. That wasn't AFib. Yep. Um, and I think that's why my doctor misdiagnosed it at first. I'm not trying to throw my doctor under the bus, but I think he totally misdiagnosed it. Wouldn't it have hurt him to throw one of those hot monitors on me for two weeks? And I don't know why he never did, but that's neither here nor there. My point is, especially nowadays, folks, with these watch things, the Apple Watch and the Google Watch and Um, I don't know if the Fitbit's tested or whatever. There are so many things that can pick up irregular heartbeats now. If you're feeling something, get one of those watches. Put it on. And if you have AFib, take it seriously because it nearly killed me. Okay, back to his question. I retired in September of 2022. And filed form SSA 44. This is an IRMA question, folks. Income-related monthly adjusted amount. IRMA. Adjustment amount, technically. Adjustment amount, thank you. Mm -hmm. This is the surcharge on Medicare premiums if you have high income in any given year once you start receiving Medicare. Now, they're going to measure from two years before. They'll start looking when you're 63 but the surcharge would begin at 65. Form SSA44 is what I call the get-out-of-jail-free card 
bad example. It's not get out of jail free, as Chris has made clear. But that's just kind of the cutesy name that I gave it. But it's the form that you would file saying, hey, my income's going to look high. It's because one of these reasons that you give me that apply to me. So please don't hold it against me and give me a surcharge on my Medicare premiums. So that's what he's talking about here. I retired in September of 2022 and filed form SSA 44 because I had reduced income in 2022 since I only worked nine months. I was in the lowest IRMA bracket by the end of 2022. I was hit with the higher IRMA starting in 2023. So I submitted another SSA Form 44, stating my income was further reduced, and now I am happily not paying any IRMA in 2023. Mm -hmm. I'm married and will be controlling our income to stay below the 22% bracket. This should also keep us out of IRMA. Will I get hit, though, with IRMA again in 2024? If the IRS looks at my 2022 income, if so, can I submit another SSA 44? What happens if I sell an investment property in 2024 for a large long-term gain? Chris stated on a recent show that this does not qualify for one of the exceptions on form SSA 44. Would I get hit again with a large IRMA now in 2026 for selling a property in 2024? Will my premium, Medicare premium, eventually, excuse me, will my Medicare premium eventually return to no IRMA in 2027, assuming I can successfully keep my income low? So he's just kind of asking about mm-hmm. how many form SSA 44s can he file? Mm-hmm. And I already know the answer, but I'll let you burst his bubble. Mm -hmm. Is he going to be hit with Irma in 2026 if he sells an investment property? He indicated in parentheses $400,000 gain. If he sells a property in 2024 with a $400,000 gain. Mm -hmm. So there's no limit on how many times you can file SSA 44. Anytime you have a life-changing event that led to a reduction in income that, and not a life-changing event, one of the seven specific life-changing events listed on SSA 44, uh, you're able to file it whenever it's appropriate. So in his particular case, if it turns out that they end up zinging him for Irma in 2024, which he will discover at the end of 2023 because his a letter from Medicare will come out uh, probably early December or so telling him, hey, just heads up for the upcoming year in 2024, your Medicare premiums will be, and then they'll divulge to them whether there's Irma in there or not. Because he had a reduction of income in 22 and 23, he has a life-changing event that qualifies. And yes, if they try to zing him with the Irma for 2024 because of this, he should file an SSA 44 because he made it clear that he's successfully uh, filed to get his 2023 down. And and that that same life-changing event with the reduction of income, as long as his income hasn't picked up again uh, during that measurement period, he uh, 
should get relief for 2024 as well. So that's the good news. The bad news is selling a property like he's describing that generates a large capital gain does go into the IRMA calculation. So a 2024 large AGI, technically modified AGI, which long-term capital gain would be in there, um, is going to then the, create a, a echo effect or, or a residual effect in 2026, because it's always two years later that this affects your Medicare premiums. Uh, he'll pay Medicare premium surcharges in 2026 based on his modified adjusted gross income in 2024. Uh, so that's the bad news. And, and he's right. What I mentioned before, disposing of uh, real estate, which is what he's talking, or, or really anything that creates a large capital gain, is not considered life-changing event. It is an area that a lot of people believe there to be a life-changing event because it says uh, one of the life-changing events is loss of income-producing property. And people interpret that as, oh, I've, I've lost my rental income because I sold my rental property. That's not a loss. That's you choosing to sell it, a voluntary act. Loss is it was taken from you in a natural disaster or vandalism, arson, you know, whatever. You've lost it uh, not because of a decision you made. Uh, so selling a rental property is not a life-changing event, and that capital gain flows right into your AGI, which is going to affect the Medicare surcharge. But the good news is, that's a one-year event. They measure IRMA every year independently, and it will then go back to you know the lower amount based on his AGI when he's not selling a property with a huge capital gain in it. And um, this just happens forever on a, this kind of two-year delay. If you have any other things that generate a lot of AGI in a year, which could be Roth conversions, could be uh, uh, selling a property could be all kinds of things. Anything that generates um, modified adjusted gross income for purposes of Irma is going to then have this two-year delayed effect and zing you with some higher Medicare premiums. So that's the um, the bad news. This this does open up a not for him but others who are listening a planning opportunity that I should point out here that you should investigate. And of course, I'm not giving specific advice to people because you'd have to look at your entire situation. But worth considering is if you're thinking about, if he was thinking about selling this property in 2024, he should have thought about selling it in 2022 because then that huge capital gain would then be ignored due to the life-changing event trigger that goes on. And then he could maybe uh, escape it, escape the natural effects of the Irma for a year by timing when that gain happens in a way that it gets kind of washed away with the life-changing event and subsequent income reduction, AGI reduction. So keep that in mind. If you have, if you have a, a, a rental property is where we see this happen most. People have a rental property that they have been depreciating over time, has a low basis. And when they sell it, there's going to be a large gain recognition, some depreciation recapture and or gain. And um, you need to consider if there's a year that you can maybe benefit from having done it and shield it because of, you know, shield it from Irma effects because you can coincide with some type of life-changing event uh, in there. So, um yeah, just a little 
just a little tip to, to consider. I don't know if it would have worked in his case or not, or in your case, if you're listening, but something to, you can't rewind it and redo it. Uh, you can't suddenly say, oh, darn, I should have sold this in 2022. Let's backdate a sale. And uh, it's just not going to work. This is something you got to do. This is where tax planning comes in and, and forward-looking. Um, any good forward-looking tax planner would have looked for IRMA effects because IRMA effectively is a tax. And um, kind of strategizing this out would, uh, might, might have helped him, might have helped him. In his case, it's probably going to be what it is. It's going to be what it's going to be. But I would say, don't let the Irma tail wag the dog. Too many people spend a lot of time fixated on trying to avoid Irma and not optimize their, yeah. their Roth conversion strategy or any yeah. type of withdrawal strategy out of fear of hitting Irma. You might hit it for a year, but then it goes away. So you ha- it's difficult, but you sometimes have to prioritize, okay, I'm going to voluntarily go into this IRMA bracket or that IRMA bracket. I know it. I'm going to be in it for one, two, three years as I'm implementing this, this longer-term tax reduction strategy. And the amount of money you may be able to save in taxes or your heirs could save in taxes at your death that you might have to forfeit now to IRMA, the amount of tax savings later could more than offset what you paid in Irma. So again, a lot of attention is given, and especially to that first or second tier. Oh, oh wait a minute, it's technically the second or third tier, right? The first tier is zero. Yeah, um, I, we always, in, in the office, we kind of talk, when we say first tier, what we mean is the first tier where you're paying a penalty. Technically, right. they consider the free tier the first tier. So I guess we should probably conform to the rest of the world. Right. That, that's ref- why I corrected myself yeah, and said, yeah, so. so we we find the second or third tier. Mm-hmm. Once you get out of the free tier, the penalty is minor. It's, it's, yeah, it's not, not enough to sometimes keep us to derail a conversion strategy or yeah. a withdrawal strategy. For sure. But um, just keep that in mind, listener and mm-hmm. listeners total. Don't fixate too much on Irma. But sometimes, and again, you may have to voluntarily go into Irma for a couple of years, especially prior to RMDs. I'm trying to paint a scenario here. Because analysis show once RMDs begin, you're going to be in Irma forever. Or a spouse, because the Irma brackets are half for a surviving spouse. Especially those of you who are similar in age and have nearly all your money in IRAs. When one spouse dies, if you're similar in age, the RMDs are going to be nearly identical. But your IRMA brackets are going to be cut in half. And you could see a widow-widower scenario where they're going to be nailed by IRMA. But as a couple, it's no IRMA or marginal IRMA. Well, again, if your tax optimization number, the 210 number, is 210 and you're not prioritizing the widow-widower, which is the one then maybe you wouldn't want to go into Irma bracket one, two, or three, or two, three, or four. But if you're trying to prioritize for a widow widower, especially if you're similar in age with very large IRA or 401k style balances, at the death of the first spouse, the RMDs are going to be the same. Yet the Irma brackets will be cut in half. It may behoove you as a couple to say, hey, we're going to prioritize one, two, zero, 
102 in our tax ordering. And we're going to go into Irma bracket 2 or Irma bracket 3 for a couple of years. So when a widow-widow scenario happens, they're not going to be nailed. Keep these things in mind. Okay. This one now is the annuity question. We're going to try to do one less social security question and throw in one annuity question. This one, I'll tell you now, I am not going to be able to give a definitive answer. I'm going to give a lot of, hmm, here's how I think it will work. Because secure two impacts per question and uncertainty even prior to secure two would impact her question. But I feel I can get really close to what she's saying or asking. The reason I want to mention it is she points out something, Chris, about spears that we probably never mention or haven't mentioned nearly enough. A feature that some, not all, spears have. And a feature that's probably more, uh, what's the saying, more something than, than uh, more, more fluff than fact? Uh, I don't know. I made that one up. That's a pretty damn good one, though. More sizzle than steak. There it is. I knew there was something out I there like that for one. it. That's my, I'm a meat eater, so I prefer that one. Plus, it's uh, one of my uh, heroes, I guess. Uses that all the time. Peter Lynch, he's, Magellan Peter Fund. Lynch, he's a, he's a all sizzle, no steak kind of guy. Okay. So I, I kind of like my thought, though. Fluff, not fact. Hmm? Fluff makes me think of a marshmallow. Just a lot of, lot of air, a lot of, lot of puffy little air. My point is the benefit I'm about to describe is not really as beneficial as it sounds. Okay. I've been listening to your podcast for about four years. Both you and Chris provide helpful and actionable personal finance knowledge. Here is the situation and my question. Uh, it is a woman, her, by the way, I'll say she does not give a state hint, so we'll skip right over that. She is from California. My husband and I purchased a qualified single premium immediate annuity in 2020 with $300,000. Qualified tells me, folks, and should be telling you if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, the annuity, the SPIA, single premium immediate annuity, is most likely inside her IRA. Mm -hmm. It could theoretically be inside her 401k, but it wouldn't in 2020. The rules were not favorable for annuities inside 401ks. They've just become favorable under Secure 2. I still don't think many, if any, 401ks offer annuities yet. So my gut tells me this is an IRA. So she put $300,000, for those who don't know, in an annuity inside an IRA. This annuity pays income. It's an annuitized annuity. The word annuity is a noun. Annuitization is the verb. Annuitization is where you take the money inside an annuity and tell the insurance company, you keep my $300,000. Instead, give me income for the rest of my life. She goes on to share, we are getting. So it's telling me she has a joint and survivor payout annuity. We are getting a 5% payout of 15000 a year. I'm glad she worded it as payout because it's not 15% interest. She is receiving, technically, she is receiving 
a return of some of her own money, some of her own $300,000. She's also receiving some interest based on whatever interest rates were in 2020 when she opened it. And she's receiving what is called mortality credits. Or in other words, the insurance company knows inside her annuity pool, let's just say there's $100,000 in that, $100,000, 100,000 people in her annuity pool. I have no idea how many are in her annuity pool. Uh, She does identify the insurance company. It's New York Life. Uh, They have, I would assume, massive annuity pools because they are a massive company. So there could be three, four, five hundred thousand people in her annuity pool. New York Life's actuaries will not be able to identify the specific people who are going to die every year by name. But what can they get eerily close to, Chris? They're amazingly accurate at knowing how many each year are going to die. Correct. They're eerily accurate on that. They don't know who, but they can get pretty damn close on how many. With that knowledge, they can calculate how much money is never going to be received by the people who die. And they share that with the other people in the annuity pool from payment one. This isn't like a tantine, tantine, not a tantine. It's not like a tantine from days of old where you got more money every year based on the people who actually died. And I think I mispronounced that. Is it tantine? Tantine? It's not not tantine. Tantine? I thought so. Okay, I'm not good at pronouncing things. Um, those are gone. Those, those are actually outlawed in the United States. There's a move to bring them back. Well, it puts them. a target on your head is why. Well, yes. That, <laughs> you they, want, they, there's incentive for people to search out the, those in, in their pool and off them because they're going to get more money. They, they were so. quite popular in medieval times yeah. uh, when yeah. CSI didn't exist. <laughs> and I just right. always wondered how many of the lords and, and, and bishops <laughs> and all these other wauntly people who were probably opening the tontines and giving money to to the people how many were going around offing them <laughs> just get rid of them and the last person surviving gets all the money yeah. so yes they it's a perverse incentive if you know who else is in your tontine pool to uh, go go off them especially in medieval times when no one could ever guess who did what okay so anyways back to what this woman has. So she has a single premium immediate annuity inside her IRA. She is receiving 15000 a year as a payout. It is not interest. It is a payout. The payout is a bunch of her own money, a bunch of interest, and mortality credits. Initial annuity payments, especially for her, are going to predominantly be a return of her own premium is taking up much of that annuity payment, similar to a mortgage. Your first mortgage payments for the first 10, 12, 15, 18 years of a 30-year mortgage are predominantly paying principal, not near, excuse me, interest. Not nearly as much of it goes to principal. Latter payments, almost all of it's going to principal. So right now, we call those a payout, not interest. Mm -hmm. Don't look at it as interest. That would be taking investment management, accumulation planning mindset and applying it to a non-investment 
insurance product. She is getting a payout of 15000 But here's what's unique that we don't mention a lot. So she continues. Our contract is with New York Life, and they have a rider with a one-time 30% withdrawal benefit mm. that I can enact in year 5, 10, or 15 mm. on my anniversary date. We didn't ask for this rider. New York Life just included it for us in the contract, and it's provided to us at no charge. Let me pause there. Yeah. So, a couple of things. These are called withdrawal riders. Many spears have them. Not all of them. New York Life is known for having this 30% one. There's other insurance companies that don't offer them at all. There's other companies, Nationwide is one, has a very unique access rider as well. Uh, as long as you take a period certain annuity, not a lifetime annuity. It gets very confusing. Maybe on another show, I'll get deeper into them. But a couple of things about these benefits. It's not that you can get 30% of what you put in. You get 30% of whatever dollars of yours are left. The insurance company tracks every year on each payment. How much of it was a return of your own money? How much of it was their interest? And how much of it is mortality credits from everyone else? And they're subtracting from the 300000 that you put in the money that they've already given you. So if you with enact this, that's her question as you see in a minute, but if you enact it in year five, I don't know out of your $15,000 a year how much of it is a return of your own money, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say a lot. I'm going to say probably 70 75%, if not 80% of what you are receiving is actually return of your own money. So out of that 15000 maybe 12 of it is your own money. So after five years, $60,000 has been returned to you. I'm making these numbers up. I just want people to follow the math here. If she enacts it at the 10th year anniversary or the 15th year anniversary, you'll see there's less and less and less of her own money left. And then they'll give her 30% of that. But you can't have your cake and eat it too your payments will then drop. Now that gets a little tricky. You're going to have to really find out from New York Life how much your payments will drop. In simple math, it would be pro rata. You take out 30% of your remaining balance, your payments drop 30%. But it's not going to quite work that way. They'll, they'll, be, they'll take into account how much money you have left and, and other measures. It's nothing that I would even be able to figure out for you. So you would need to really ask New York Life, how much will my payments drop by? They're not going to let you take 30% of what you originally put in and let you keep all of those uh, additional payments for the rest of your life without reducing them. So again, they're going to let you get 30% of what your remaining annuity balance is and your payments will drop. But here's her reasoning behind it, Chris. 
She said, we purchased this annuity in 2020. Interest rates were a lot lower than they are now. Assuming interest rates keep rising or at least stay higher than they were in 2020, when we get to 2025, would it benefit us to withdraw this 30%? I have read the two-page rider and it's confusing how it's calculated and whether or not the withdrawal can be rolled over into another annuity or back into my IRA. It would be great if you could explain it. Well, I'm not going to explain your rider. You're really going to have to get on the phone with New York Life and ask them these questions. Not now. Do it in 2025. But also keep in mind, listener, I don't think taking the money out, whatever amount you're going to get, is going to give you more money because they're going to reduce your payment. And depending on how much they reduce your payment by, it may not even be worth it. Because I think what she's saying is, wow, I regret buying this. Interest rates are higher. I could have got more money. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. The two biggest drivers in what you receive from an annuity company are the return of your own dollars, and it's based on your age. So your age and mortality credits are the two biggest drivers, not interest rates. Interest rates are important. I'm not going to downplay that. But I don't think the savings will be as great as what she's thinking. But she also points out something very important. This money is inside an IRA. She's asking, can I move it to another annuity? Well, you would have to get it into an IRA. Your appropriate question is the second part or another IRA. To heck with an annuity. Get an annuity out of the picture of what you're going to move it into. You got to get it into an IRA first. And here's my issue, what makes this confusing for me to give a definitive answer. Prior to Secure 2, I think the rules were quite explicit. Prior to Secure 2, when you took an IRA or a 401k, which is built on a defined contribution platform, you put money in, they're going to define what you put in, the contributions. The benefit is unknown. When you annuitize, it became a defined benefit platform. Mm -hmm. And Chris, IRS and the government were quite explicit. When in, prior to Secure 2, when an IRA was annuitized, and it's now being treated more as a defined benefit than defined contribution plan, the payments were considered what? Your 100%. RM your RMD. Your RMD. Mm -hmm. From that That's, account, from that particular from that, account. Correct. Mm -hmm. From that IRA and that IRA only. Everybody knows if you listen to these podcasts, IRAs cannot be rolled over. So to me, pre-secure two, even if you're taking a lump sum distribution, you're, you're just taking future payments because your payments are going to drop. You're taking future RMDs and front-loading them. I don't think you could have rolled it over pre-secure two. Case closed to me. Others could argue the point, but to me, no. It's they, they were very explicit pre-secure two. 
an annuitized IRA is going to be treated more like a defined benefit plan, not a defined contribution plan. And a defined benefit plan or pension says the distribution from that account and that account only is hereby considered the RMD for that account forever. And RMDs can never be rolled over. Now, secure two through that on the floor. It didn't, excuse me, flew it on the ceiling. It didn't stick. It fell to the floor and then it kicked it across the room. So it's all a mess because secure two came out and said, hey, if you have an annuitized IRA, you just need to figure out, of course, no guidance, folks, on how to figure this out. You just need to figure out what the value of that IRA is if it wasn't annuitized, what the dollar value would be. Then you just have to figure out what the RMD of that present value annuity is. And anything in excess of that can be used to reduce the RMDs of other IRAs. You were never allowed to do that pre-secure two because the rule was simple. This is a defined benefit plan now. The entire RMD applies to just that account and no others. So now I'm not sure is her, my answer to her. If you even want to pull this off, and I would not recommend it, but if you wanted to for some reason and you found out how much money you will get in five years and how much your income is going to drop, and those dollars, if you were to receive them, could purchase more income than the amount you're going to drop, assuming all that comes into play, now you got to get it into an IRA, and then you're going to have to deal with probably a letter audit trying to explain why you're not paying taxes on this and all that other stuff. But assuming you want to navigate that, Secure 2 confuses me, Chris, because it's essentially saying you're going to identify what the RMD of that account is. And you can use the excess to offset other IRAs. Will the IRS say anything in excess? What if she has no other IRAs to offset it? Could that excess be put into an IRA? It's not, it didn't have to come out is what the IRS is saying. This is excess. Yes, you can move those excess dollars into another IRA as a rollover because we're not going to consider it RMD. I don't know. Because on the other hand, they say it can be used to offset other RMDs. Well, if you have an IRA... And inside that IRA, you put a non-annuitized withdrawal benefit annuity into it. They always pay more than the RMD. And the IRS was always explicit. Because you have an account balance and it's easy to see, the excess distribution, it's not an RMD. You can easily identify what the RMD of that account is. That excess distribution, you could always use it to offset another RMD, or roll it into an IRA because it wasn't an RMD. You took the RMD from that account. You subtracted it out. It was very It's very easy math. I'll do a whole show on how to figure this out, what I'm talking about. But that excess 
could have been moved into an IRA as a rollover because it wasn't the RMD. So you can see, Chris, I can't possibly give a straight answer. And the IRS hasn't clarified anything on this. And it takes effect, quote unquote, immediately. But they haven't specified any of these rules that I'm bringing up, any yeah. of these, they're probably sitting around scratching their damn head too, saying, why the hell did Congress do this? Yeah. What do they think? Do they have it in for us? I mean, they, they, they don't know either. They're still trying to write the rules on this. The good news, this woman has to 2025. I think by 2025, they'll have it figured out. And ask me again in 2025, because I'll forget. And I might have a more definitive answer. But it's intriguing that it might be able to be done if they treat this more like a withdrawal benefit of an annuity and not an RMD per se, saying this extra money can be treated only as an RMD and can be used to offset all your IRAs. In a withdrawal annuity, Chris, it says the excess, assuming your other RMD is fully satisfied. You have to satisfy all your RMDs for all your IRAs. But if there's any excess from that withdrawal benefit in an IRA annuity and a non-annuitized withdrawal benefit annuity, you can move those dollars back into the IRA. Assuming you fully offset all RMDs from all your IRAs, anything extra could go in as a rollover. So I don't know how to answer her question. Yeah, this is definitely a devil's in the details kind of a situation. So we're all waiting for IRS clarification on this, which hopefully will come before 2025. So, <laughs> But honestly, I don't think it's going to be as nearly as beneficial as what this woman thinks at all. But you might as well, if we have definitive guidance and it looks good, then you might want to try it. But I wouldn't waste your time worrying about it now or fixating over it. And I certainly wouldn't say, oh, my timing was off on buying the annuity. If you bought the annuity in 2020, it's because you had a purpose, you had a reason. It was a, a fixed income stream. You, you, you needed to do this. So it was appropriate at the time. Don't let hindsight bias ever make you say, oh, God, I should have, would have, could have. You took care of the need at hand. Now the rules have changed post your decision. You didn't know they were going to change. So don't hold it against anybody, not just this listener. Say, oh, gosh, I should have waited. I should have did this. I should have did that. If we could see into the future, I could tell you exactly what I should have done today. So we don't. We don't have that luxury. Okay. Next question. How much time is remaining? Uh, We've got time for one more question, as long as it's not a marathon question. Well, that's just it. I could turn it on into the question of the week, which made... Okay, I'll do this one. It's not a... I I won't do the associated question I was going to do with it. But I got an email this morning, because I I told everyone I was going to talk about this. So I got an email this morning. Um. Was this the question that I'm not going to answer? You probably okay. got a bunch of emails this morning. <laughs> I, did. I did. There's always but emails. I, there's always emails. But I got an email from a radio show, a podcast listener. Mm-hmm. So his title, subject rather, mm-hmm. caught my eye. Mm-hmm. I disagree with the Ed Slot question. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. He's questioning God. I know why that so, caught your eye then. <laughs> so I read it. And here's what he says, Chris, mm-hmm. and, and listeners. Jim, great show. I noticed he threw you under the bus. Didn't even mention your name. Jim, great show. I always enjoy listening. Um, my state question, let's go real quickly through the state question. I knew this answer. I don't know why, but I heard this before and I never forgot it. The state where the first 911 phone call was ever made. Illinois. It was made in 1968, in case you want to know. Illinois. Alabama. I don't know why I've always remembered that. Interesting. Okay. Okay. The call was made in Haleyville, Alabama. Okay. In your latest EDU show that aired on 10-4 of 23, the second to last question on the Ed Slot test related to the taxability of the net income, I hate this word, attribute a bull. Mm-hmm. I, I can do it. I just got to pause between the attribute and the a bull. And let's just from now on call it NIA from this point forward. Mm-hmm. The second to last question related to the taxability of NIA on an excess Roth IRA contribution. You said the answer to the question was that the NIA will be taxable when removed from the Roth but there'll be no 10% penalty. I don't believe that is correct, he says. In your example, the person was 30 years old. Below are three articles, one from TD Ameritrade, one from Avestopedia, and one from The Motley Fool. All articles were written in 2023. All of them were written post-Secure 2. And all of them state the 10% penalty does apply to the NIA if the individual is under 59 and a half and are fixing an excess contribution to a Roth IRA. So he sent me the links and I read all three articles and I'm going to mention things about two of the articles and all three articles said the NIA will be subject to income taxes, and a 10% early withdrawal penalty. So let me explain for those who didn't listen to last week's show, and this is going to be real quick. In the example, and we'll just hypothetically say say it here, but in the example, I'm going from memory, it was a 30-year-old person who I believe put money into a, a Roth. I think it was a 5,000. I can't remember what it was. Put more money into the Roth than they were allowed to. They made an XS contribution. In 2022, in 2023, way before October 2023, Ed wrote in his example question, they removed the excess contribution in addition to $200 of net income attribute a bull. The NIA is how much growth or loss is attribute a bull to the $5,000 that was put in as an excess contribution. Publication 590 tells you how to do it. In Ed's example, he said there's $200 of net of NIA. Chris guessed this answer correctly. He said the return of the $5,000 is not taxable and the $200 of NIA will be subject to taxes but will not be subject to a 10% early withdrawal penalty. You got it right. Mm-hmm. 
All three of the articles had it wrong. They were saying the NIA is going to be subject to the 10% early withdrawal penalty. So I had to go to God himself again. And I sent an email to the Ed Slot group. I never get Ed. You always get his minions. Mm -hmm. Very smart minions, though. Very smart minions. And they quickly responded back. I even sent them the TD Ameritrade article to read. Mm -hmm. It was the shortest of the three. And at the bottom of the TD Ameritrade article, right before it ended, it clearly was saying they were going to have to pay a 10% early withdrawal penalty. The example TD used was a 40-year-old, not a 30-year-old. Mm -hmm. It was an excess, all of them, all three websites, excess contributions to Roth IRAs, not traditional, Roth IRAs. The long and the short of it, folks, Secure Act 2 is explicit. Under Secure Act 2, there is no longer a 10% early withdrawal penalty on NIA. And it reads, Section 333, Elimination of Additional Tax on Corrective Distributions of Excess Contributions. And if you read that, it clearly says the 10% early withdrawal penalty is no longer assessed on NIA when fixing an excess contribution to an IRA, whether it's a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA. So I want to make that perfectly clear. But why did I want to bring this up? For some bizarre reason, I decided to read all three of these articles. Mm-hmm. And I'm only going to pick on two, Motley Fool, which I think made the most blatant errors ever, yeah. and TD Ameritrade. And I've run into that. I I actually have pretty well stopped reading things sent to me from Motley Fool because I've run into this a lot in the last couple of years. Years ago, I didn't, but some things happened. And now there's, it's a real crapshoot if you're going to get good info in those articles. So, but, but share what you found. So as I was reading the article, let's go to TD first. So TD Ameritrade, and, and the takeaway from this, listeners and Chris, don't trust what you read on the internet, even from seemingly reliable sources. Investopedia, Motley Fool, TD Ameritrade, even though it's now Charles Schwab. Very knowledgeable sources. Trust but verify is a great Trust approach. but verify. Yep. Nor am I trying to say, and I don't think Chris is trying to say either, because you shouldn't trust what we say. Honestly, no. you shouldn't. Especially Chris, Chris makes mistakes on this podcast all the time. He's proud enough to admit it. He doesn't care. Listeners, you all make mistakes constantly when you write to me saying Chris misspoke, but you spell his name wrong. You spell it J-I-M. J-I-M said this and it was wrong. J-I-M said that and it's wrong. Chris is spelled C-H-R-I-S. Everyone makes mistakes. Our listeners can't spell your name for some reason, Chris. And you are very comfortable with yourself and can manly take when you say something wrong. Don't trust what even Chris and I say. Verify it. And everybody knows I'm joking. I say things wrong constantly on this podcast and people write to me to pick it up. And Chris says things wrong. We're not perfect either. 
but the proofing on these websites was not good. And it concerned me because they're giving bad information. So at the bottom of the website, TD Ameritrade says this, calculating NIA may appear to be rather straightforward. They give an example on how to calculate it. It is fairly straightforward, but publication 590 walks you through it. Calculating NIA may appear to be straightforward, but it can get confusing real fast. Always consult your tax professional if you have any doubts. The underlying message we're relaying is this. If you contribute over, don't panic. There is a fix. But remember, there is a 6% penalty for any excess contribution and NIA not removed by your tax filing deadline, not including extensions. Can you pick up the very blatant error in what I just read? The 6% penalty doesn't happen at your tax filing deadline. Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. It does apply if you don't remove it by your tax filing. It's They're wrong on that when they should have said October 15th of the year following, which is your tax filing deadline. With extensions, right. With extensions. So you'd have to read it again. Since I don't have it in front of me to read. I'm going to say, this time I'm going to say what they had wrong. And I couldn't believe it. And I got back a hold of the minions at Ed Slot. And I said, did you guys pick up on this? And they wrote back and they say, yeah, we saw the same thing. They write, just remember, there is a 6% penalty for any excess contributions and NIA not removed by your tax filing deadline. NIA is never Charged subject 6%. to the 6% right. penalty. Yep. And the reason we know this, folks, we've talked about this many times. Mm-hmm. When you make an excess contribution to an IRA, in this case, we're talking Roths. When you make an excess contribution to a Roth, you have until October 15th of the year following the year you made the excess contribution. And the, and the reason it's October 15th is that is the tax filing deadline with extensions, with extensions for that year. That's why it's the next year, October 15th. That's where that comes from. So that is consistent with their wording. So you have until October 15th to remove the excess contribution and the NIA. And it doesn't mean there's going to be a positive NIA if the market mm-hmm. dropped. There could be a negative NIA. Mm-hmm. So if you put an excess contribution of five thousand in, if your NIA was negative two hundred, you would only have to remove four thousand eight hundred. Mm-hmm. But in Ed's example, it was a positive two hundred. Okay. If you remove it by the deadline, there is no six percent penalty tax. On anything. But if you on, on, on anything, right? If you leave it in to October sixteenth. You have to pay a 6% penalty tax on the excess contribution only, $5,000, not the 200 of NIA. And the NIA can stay in forever Mm -hmm. and never be assessed a 6% penalty tax. The $5,000 needs to come out at some point in time. 
But the 200 in NIA has never assessed the penalty tax. So that was worded inappropriately. Mm-hmm. But the, the dunce cap goes to Motley Fool. And I don't mean this name. We are not perfect and neither is Motley Fool. I am not picking on them. And I don't read them an, uh, anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. I used to years and years ago in the early 90s and mid 90s when they were part of AOL. And uh, I read them a lot when I was learning about all this. I don't read consumer stuff anymore. But when someone sends it to me, I read the article. And I was aghast at the bottom of the article. I even wrote back to the guy and I said, did you pick up on, on this at the bottom of the article? And that's what I, I highlighted uh, to him. So I want to pull up. Okay. In the Motley Fool article, they go to great lengths to give you advice on how to fix the excess contribution to a Roth IRA, folks. Keep that in mind, Roth IRA. They write this. Another option is withdraw the excess the following year. For those who did not correct their mistake before the tax filing deadline, they made an excess contribution in, excuse me, in the year they made an excess contribution, they can withdraw it next year. If you do this, you have to take out only the contribution. Perfect. I was like, wow. This is good. They got it right. This is not known by most people. Excellent. You do not have to take out any earnings or NIA folks. You will pay the 6% excise tax for the year you left the excess contribution in, but you don't have to worry about the uh, 6% in future years. In other words, if you take out the excess, you do have to pay the penalty, but you won't have to pay it anymore because you took it out. And they rightly pointed out the NIA or earnings, as they called it, can sit in. They should have quit Chris while they were ahead because they then wrote this. The government charges you ordinary income tax when you withdraw these excess contributions, even though you already paid taxes on this income in the year you earned it. Oh, my gosh. They will also, it will also charge you, it mean the government, it will also charge you a 10% early withdrawal penalty if you're younger than 59 and a half. My Lord. So this isn't always an affordable way to fix your problem. That paragraph just, makes it they just drove blatantly the truck wrong. Off the, yeah, they just drove the truck off the mountain with that one. Absolutely. The money you put into, and it's for a Roth. It's not an IRA. The title of this is How Roth IRA Excess Contributions Happen and How to Fix Them. Roth IRA Excess Contribution, here's how to undo. This is how to fix them. They took, I think, here's what I think they did. They took a paragraph from a regular IRA and fixing the excess contribution on an IRA where you deducted the contribution. Although it can't, not because of the way they earned it. They said right. you were already taxed when you earned it. Yeah, so they so this clearly is just blatantly up. wrong. Yeah, yeah, they just, yeah, that's bad. I was trying to save them. No. Think bad. again what they're saying, folks. They just said money that they were right in the sense money that you put into a Roth is after tax dollars. 
But they are saying when you take the excess contribution out, let's just say the excess was $5,000. they are saying when you take that $5,000 out, they're going to double tax you. They're going to tax you again on it. And if you're under 59 and a half, they're going to throw a 10% penalty on that. That is just wrong. Mm-hmm. I also don't like, well, before I say why, before I go on to the last point, the reason it's wrong is everybody knows the money you put into your Roth can come out at any time, any reason, no taxes, no penalties. If you put in $5,000 excess and you take it out and follow the rules, there will be no taxes and no 10% penalty. Now, if there's NIA, yes, the NIA will be subject to taxes if it's not qualified, but there won't be a 10% early withdrawal penalty. If the NIA is qualified, there won't even be any taxes on that, but that's a whole episode for another show. Here's the thing I also didn't like with Motley Fool and TD, and if memory serves me correct, the Investopedia article. They always use the verbiage withdraw, withdraw, withdraw. They make it sound like this person in the following year can just just log on to their Vanguard account and say, oh, my God, I put a $5,000 excess contribution in there and just take it out. And all is good. It's a corrective distribution. Exactly. When I got back a hold of the minions at Ed Slot and pointed out this paragraph and the other one, they wrote back and they said, this is not a DIY strategy. You must involve the custodian. If you just log on and withdrew, let's say again, it's a $5,200 you need to take out. $5,000 of contribution, $200 of NIA. If you just log on to your Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, whatever account you happen to be, all you do it yourself first, and you think, oh, I'm brilliant. I got publication 590. I figured it out what my NIA is. I got to take out $5,200. Let me log on. Like the guy who woke up, was it New Year's Eve? He woke up in the middle of the morning and Mm, and undid a convert. (laughs) Remember that one? Yeah. So you, you're bored, you can't sleep, it's two in the morning, you decide to log on to your Fidelity website and just say, you know, distribute $5,200 from my Roth, send it to me, and you think you fixed it? You didn't. You have to tell the custodian, I want to file a corrective distribution because the custodian folks have to code the 1099R correctly. It needs to be coded correctly as code eight, which means a corrective distribution for a contribution made that that tax year, or code P, a corrective distribution for a contribution made in a previous for P year. If you just log on, and withdraw money, your 1099 isn't even going to be coded correctly. And in the IRS's eyes, you didn't fix the problem because you have to actually go in and target, Mm -hmm. you're supposed to, go in and target the excess contribution and the net income attributable to that. No one says that at all. But the thing that I picked up on in the description 
from the um, Section 333 of SECURE Act, look how it's worded. It begins, current law requires a distribution if too much is contributed to an IRA. The corrective distribution includes the excess contribution and any earnings allocable? A-L-L-O-C-A-B-L-E. Man, the government's really trying to screw me up on that word. Allocable? Yeah. Allocable is a word? Not one I use every day, but okay. allocated well, to is essentially what they're meaning by that. Well, yeah, but allocable? That sounds like a muff-up that I would do. Uh, anyways, so let me look. Current law requires a distribution if too much is contributed to an IRA. The corrective distribution, it doesn't say withdrawal, folks. It says the corrective distribution includes the excess contribution and any earnings allocable to that contribution, otherwise NIA. Notice they don't word it, the withdrawal. Right. Please, you do-it-yourselfers, don't just go online, read an article on any website, or listen to our podcast for Pete's sakes. Don't rely on what we say. Proof it. But I do know enough to know when you fix an excess contribution, you do not do it yourself online, unless online it lets you indicate this is a corrective distribution and it's for this tax year. That might allow, but if it doesn't, just don't go make a withdrawal and think, oh, I fixed it. I was put in 5000 My NIA was 200 I just did a withdrawal for 5200 I'm good, and wash your hands. You didn't fix it. You created more of an issue. It's a corrective distribution, and your 1099 must be either code 8 or code P, depending if it's a current year or prior year excess contribution. Okay, I'm done. That wraps up the show. But that's what got me going today. So the non-marathon turned into a marathon, but it was very interesting. So (laughs) thanks for bringing that to everybody's attention. But I'm appalled (laughs) at some of the, especially the Motley Fool verbiage, Mm -hmm. clearly indicating that the excess contribution being withdrawn the next year from a Roth IRA is going to be fully taxable to you again as double taxation. Just yep. totally wrong. Yep. So thanks, everybody, for listening in. Like I said at the top of the show, if you want to send in your own questions for consideration on the show, just send them to Jim directly. His email is jim at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. Indicate in the subject line that it's a question for the podcast, and he'll uh, take a look, and maybe we'll read yours and answer it even on a show in the future. So uh, we really appreciate listening, and we'll be back with everybody next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. 
Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 